And on the red mic, weighing in at 140 pounds, it's Andrew Young. And on the yellow mic, weighing in, I'm not going to say, because that would be impolite, it's Carl Quinn. This week on The Clappers, we're talking... Renee Zellweger. We're talking Annabelle Crabbe and her latest quarterly essay. We're talking Maiden, a fantastic film that I really urge you to check out. We, we You can go to the fairground and they guess your weight and, you know, that kind of business. We don't, we're not at the fairground today. Mm. We're in the studio. Mm. We are the Clappers. Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to us today. Andrew, I had, uh, mm. I had the... Lunch. Interesting. No, not lunch. No. You not did. Lunch. I had, well, I did have lunch. I've had many lunches. <laughs> I had the interesting experience of uh, meeting and interviewing Renee Zellweger recently when she was in town. Okay. Interesting She's, choice of words. Uh, well, <laughs> so she was here yep. for Judy. Are, yep. are you aware of this film? Judy, Judy? Garland. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I've heard about this. You've yeah. heard about this. It's okay. like the 15th person to play Judy Garland. Very interesting. Whatever. Uh, she's pretty good. Okay. She's pretty good, isn't it? It's, yeah, I think uh, she's pretty good. It's a film about uh, Judy Garland in the last year of her life, mm-hmm. 1969. She's pretty. Her career is nowhere. Uh, her bank balance is nowhere. Mm-hmm. Her home is nowhere. She's mm-hmm. actually homeless uh, yeah. in this. She go, goes to London. She gets an engagement. I think it's in February of 69 uh, at Talk of the Town for a couple of weeks. And she's, you know, she oscillates between being a complete mess yep. and absolutely brilliant. I'm sorry it's so late. Miss Carl. Oh, please. I'm Judy. I'm very sorry, but your suite has been released. What do you mean, released? Where exactly has it gone? <laughs> your account was in arrears. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Mama, please don't go to sleep now. No, no, no. There's the other one. Zing, zing, zing. The kids need a home, Judy. I know what kids need. They need their mother. You can't have the world's greatest entertainer out here without a drink. Frank Sinatra's here? Frank is great, but he is no Judy Garland. I don't have a home. I can't even get a manager. London would offer you a lot of money. Talk of the town is desperate to do a deal with you. You're saying I have to leave my children if I want to make enough money to be with my children? It's a pretty good performance. Well, it's actually a very good performance Mm. in a pretty good film. Okay. It's not a a scintillating film. I think it's a little Uh bit... Uh, yeah, it's a little bit by the by the numbers yeah. uh, in places. If you've seen um, My Week with Marilyn, if you've seen Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, if you've seen there's there's uh, God, there's another one that's just skipped right out of my head. Uh, there's this sort there was of one like with Judy m- Davis micro trope of. I'm not talking about films about Judy Garland. I'm talking oh, about okay, I'm talking about this micro trope of of films ab- about former stars mm. who. Fetch up! Oh, oh, oh Stan and Stan and Ollie. Uh, yeah. that's the other one. Yeah, who fetch up in in England at the tail end of their oh, careers, I see. right? right? Yeah, and they do yep. this kind of. They have this sort of adoring public, and it's almost like they're you know the English are almost like the rubes who can yeah, still yeah. be impressed by yeah. the faded glamour of it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very interesting little yeah, yeah, su- sure, subgenre. Sure. Anyway, so it's if you've seen those films, yeah. you've kind of you've, you've got seen, the same you've trajectory yeah, in a okay, way. Okay, yeah, right? but the the sort of the the. The strength of this is Zellweger's performance, right? She she sings all the songs in it. Uh, some of them I would say are pretty much as as recorded live, yeah. And then others are obviously you know post synced. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know she's recorded them in a studio and then they've overlaid on the performance. Yep. So it's it's very impressive in that respect. Um, and you know, you may remember that she sang in Chicago, so it's not the first time she's been in a singing role. There was also uh, there was also another role she did about nine or ten years ago where she sang a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so 
All that. She was yes. here for that. Okay? Yes. She's also yeah. in this Mensa. Netflix series called What If, which uh-huh. uh, which I've been watching, and it's so trashy. It's so yeah. trashy. It it basically is indecent proposal. Do you okay, remember that yeah, film? Okay, yeah, I, I do. I, you know, I saw like the last three minutes of that film. I never saw that film. <laughs> Somehow I turned on the television and it was the last three minutes where they're both in a car and not, I'm talking about those two stars, Demi Moore and Robert Redford, not Robert Redford, who is her husband? Whoever is her husband. Anyway, they're both in a car. I want to say not Matthew happy, Modine, but not I'm happy, not, sure not happy no, at all. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Okay. Woody Harrelson. Now I don't want to spoil it for anybody, so I won't say how it ends, but I was really pleased that I saw the last three minutes and did not have to wade through the whole film it's great when that accidentally happens and yeah. I was very pleased with myself yeah okay well so this is basically uh what if is a 10 yes. part Netflix series in which um Renee Zellweger plays she basically plays the Robert Redford character right who dangles okay. a fortune in front of this yes. couple uh on the condition that she has one night with the husband <laughs> <laughs> Played by Blake it's Jenner. Preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, the 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 wife gets to have um, the wife, played by Jane Levy basically gets to have funding for her genetic um, genetics company to basically okay. uh, you know find a cure for everything. Great, right? Um, perfect. <laughs> It's trashy. Yes. It's so trashy. Yes. It's kind of fun. Sounds like Nip Tuck. It's uh, it's well the, the the sort of the the um the titles yes. like what if it, it, it even has the same treatment as Nip Tuck. Yeah, so yeah. it's what slash if. Yeah. <laughs> but Ryan Murphy's not involved in this at all. No, you don't, no? no, no, no. It's okay. Mike Kelly who did um, Revenge. I don't know if you okay. ever saw Re- Revenge no, on TV. So. If, um, Philip Noyce, who's like yeah, a great Noyce. Australian director, Noyce. directs the first couple of episodes of it. He's yeah. a setup director on it. So it's uh, And it harks back to those early, late 80s, early 90s kind of thrillers. It's set in San Francisco, mm-hmm. as almost all of those oh, sort of psychological, psychosexual oh. thrillers were. I can think of one, but. Go but on. What? That uh, 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 Alfred Hitchcock one with Kim Novak, uh, Vertigo. Right, right. Vertigo. Yeah, I'm talking about in the 80s and 90s. Vertigo was a little bit earlier. It was, wasn't it? It was yeah. in the 1950s. <laughs> about 59. I'm, 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 I, I used to like the streets of San Francisco when right. I was a kid. Anyway. <laughs> Angie Dickinson is not in this anyway. She wasn't in that no, either. She was in Police Woman. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it, it's trashy. It's good yep. fun. Okay, sort of. But this is it's all this, this whole is all preamble. Preamble. Is so you can oh. talk about you can, yeah because you bloody talk Renee to me Zellweger. about talking for too long. Renee Zellweger. Yeah, let's in talk town. about her. She's okay. in town. What's she like? Well, saucy. I almost didn't get feisty. To meet her. I almost didn't get to meet her because mm. before there was any interviews teed up with Renee Zellweger, mm. there was a vetting process. Oh, I like it. I was, like it. Which was <laughs> you, have should have, you, you should have brought me. <laughs> it, like the email, the email goes. The email goes. Um, we need to we need to know who might be doing the interview so that Renee's people can vet them. Uh, because you know, does this happen a lot to you? Nice nasty stuff was written about her. Right now, just to set the scene here. 2014, Renee Zellweger had been out of the business. She basically disappeared for six years. She, okay. 2010, yep. she, ma- she made a film. 2016, she suddenly mm-hmm. is making Bridget Jones's baby and she okay. appears, right? She's, right? And she's been quite busy. I since have to then. take your word for this. Six years, she yep. dropped out of the business. Okay, didn't notice. 2014, she turned up on the red carpet at a women in film uh, event yep. in LA. And she was photographed and there was this flurry of coverage about <gasps> what's she done to her face, blah, 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 right? Okay. Okay. Uh, 
I've got no, I have no view on what she may or may not have done to her face. I personally have no idea. I <laughs> don't know. I don't care. I'll but, go one step further. But the coverage, the coverage was mm. really nasty, okay. right? Yep. Including the, uh, there was a piece by Owen Gleiberman, who, who is uh, uh, at Variety, he's a senior critic at Variety, who basically kind of wrote this piece that sort of, sort of intimated that he felt betrayed. Like, why Why can't she be the woman she was oh, back then? And it was like... Really? Yeah, yeah. It was, mm. And it was quite... It was the, the whole tenor of it was pretty pretty awful. Right? Mm. Mm. Anyway, Bridget Jones's Baby comes out in 2016. Yep. I wrote a piece then that had the headline on it, The Shocking Truth About Renee Zellweger's Face in Bridget Jones's Baby, right? And the piece was like... Guess what? She's older. She's forty-seven. You know, she doesn't look like the girl that you you knew in Jerry Maguire and whatever. And it's like it's a shock because we don't see women of that age playing romantic leads very often. Okay, and that's that's an uncommon thing. And and then I did this kind of piece that was about the sort of statistics. You'll be delighted to know oh, good. The statistics. Bring in the statistics uh, about. <laughs> <laughs> about the the number of speaking parts that go to men who are aged oh, yes, and above yes, yes. versus women, and like it was way out of kilter, right? So you know, men get loads of roles, women get very few mm-hmm. over that age, and very very few in romantic leads. Okay, so anyway, that was the context. Had you know, it was like they've done a search, they've turned up this article. I suspect what they've done is they've read the headline and they've not read the story. Of course they haven't read the whole of thing. Course they These read people the don't read the whole thing. So we had this wrangling that went on for like two weeks. So they were okay, so you're saying to me, uh, in the longest way possible, that they didn't necessarily want you to be the interviewer for Renee Zegwiger because they suspected you wrote a nasty article about yeah, her. Yeah, yep. But they which, didn't, which but they didn't bother which, reading Which the wasn't a nasty article. No, no, no that's right. No. Anyway, I ended up. It was ironic. That's an ironic title. It is. It is. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> I, I finally get approved somehow. Finally get approved. It's incredible. Who pulled the strings? I don't know. I don't know. I turn up. There are three publicists outside the room. There's a security guard. There's two more publicists inside the room. Oh, and there's publicists absolutely take to no personal life. questions. You know, it's like. It's it's crazy the mm. sort of the the level of handling yes. of these people yes. sometimes. It's just it's just astonishing. Don't, don't they also that. sometimes offer a list here of the questions we'd like you to ask? Very rarely. Okay. On, on occasion, I once interviewed Kim Kardashian and I had to submit my list of questions beforehand, mm-hmm. which then of course prom, prom, completely ignored. Yeah. And I said, "So did you read the questions?" Oh no. And it was like, "What was the point of this exercise, really?" I Power. Mean, yeah. Well, yeah. Power, yes, indeed. That's the point. Anyway, yeah. you know, in the flesh. So there she is. She looks gorgeous. Okay. She's very nice. And we didn't talk about anything personal. Okay. Because that's the way it goes. Sure. So what, do you, what, ask, do, you, what do you talk about, I motor did, cars? Uh, oh, you talk about the role and all the rest. So I did ask this one question right mm. at the end. I, I said, okay, so, you know, Judy Garland has some pretty horrible treatment at the hands of the press. Now, you, you've experienced that. Did that help you relate to the role, right? Mm. In the background – Publicist goes, last question. <laughs> so does that mean that that question was the last question? You've got one more. I had, I actually had one more after that, which uh-huh. I, you know, I don't know, fine print, fine print. I was allowed one more question, but it was like, we are shutting it down. So was this, this is not the type of interview you would enjoy doing. No, it's a pain in the ass yeah. doing this kind yeah. of thing. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, it's like 
did I did I need to speak to Renee Zellweger? No. no. Do, I, do I feel my life is enriched ever so marginally? It's kind of like if you, you know, go to a party whatever. full of shallow people, yeah. or even with just a few attractive shallow people, yeah. you can go and talk to them, and you've got something to talk to them about. Yeah. yeah. So there's it's think, handy. There's that. We've got it in the back pocket. You've probably got a, a full back pocket of mm. things like that yeah, that probably. you can bring out for the shallow people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then for the people of depth. And intellectual perspicacity. Mm. You, have, you have this. I have you. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, there's a film I really want to urge you and anybody Everybody. listening to go and check yep. out. It's called Maiden. I've seen it. What? The Handmaiden. No. Park Chan Wook. <laughs> that is a great film. Great film. What's it called? The Handmaiden. And what is it? It's a sexy Korean film about right. uh, all kinds of saucy goings on. Okay, and, I'll, and I'll give you. I'll give you forty-five seconds. Go on. No, it's okay. All right, let's that's talk it. about. Yeah, You're done. that's You're done. all. I've, I've said all that needs to be said. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Maiden is definitely not that film. Okay. Maiden is a documentary. Yep. It's uh, about the. Uh, 1989-90 Whitbread race, uh, yacht race, mm-hmm. sailor, sailing around the world. Around the world, yep. Uh, All-female crew. First time there was ever an all-female crew in the Case. race. Yep. Everybody thought they were they wouldn't make it out of England. They wouldn't they wouldn't ah, make yes, it to the, the old end of the story. first leg. They were going to. My were God, it's sing. a woman. I referred to by the Guardian's yes. uh, yachting writer. <laughs> They've got their <laughs> own yachting correspondent. correspondent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> You'd at least think he was a rowboat writer or the cargo ship writer, but no, no, he's a writer. He referred to them as a tin of tarts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Imagine what the mirror or the sun or the news of the world called them if the Guardian called them that. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, so they they were just so much disdain for them. Um, And they basically... Should I say... I won't say. I mean, you you can look it up if you want to know what happened. Yeah, yeah. Let's say they did not sink. They did not die. <coughs> they did not or die. Or did they die? No no deaths aboard. Not on their ship. Not on their not ship. On their boat, no, well, it's, it's, uh, yeah. we've spoken about yachting films before and it is a, a perilous and, and, and fraught and adventure. And the Whitbread is, like, it's astonishing. It's 33,000 miles or something over nine months of which about five or six is spent at sea. It's like, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly gruelling thing and you, you get, because there was a lot of footage shot on board the ship at the time. Yep. So there's, you know, Pretty pretty raw, rough and ready footage, but it's like it gives you a sense of what it was like being there, including this amazing footage of these giant seas in the Southern Ocean, mm-hmm. sailing very close to Antarctica, very close to giant icebergs and yep. these waves yep. that are bigger than I would ever want to see, mm-hmm. and uh, quite amazing. So the, the the sort of main character in this story is a woman called Tracy Edwards. Yep. She was twenty three when she basically got this this crew together. She she drove the whole campaign, right? So she raised the funds, bought a boat. Uh, the women themselves had to repair this boat because it was an old wreck. It was like yeah. they, it was a you know, well, not a wreck, but it was not in great condition. Yeah. they had to repair the 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 boat and make it seaworthy. Um, they so they knew this boat inside and out. Probably a good which thing. Is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yes, because there's one point where they get a hole. Yes. <laughs> so don't worry, I've got this. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I know where the duct tape is. It's all right. Pass um, me that mall. It is. It is such an incredible story. Mm. It's so powerful, so moving, yeah. so inspiring. I, I frequently had tears in my eyes watching this film. But most, you know, it was sort of you sort of go from 
absolute frustration at the mm. kind of the hurdles they're facing to awe at their ability to get past them to, you know, just a sense of good on you. Yes. Good on you. Yes. It's awesome. So it, it's not on in a lot of places. It's okay. on some indie cinemas around all around Australia. Uh, but I, I would absolutely urge people to seek it out and watch it because it is an exhilarating ride. So it's the footage story. at the, the yeah. footage of the event at the time mm. was taken how by well, whom? Well, it was the first time, uh, as I understand it, it was the first time they had video cameras on board these yachts. So yeah. the Whitbread's held every four years, right? Okay. It goes over, yeah. it, this was 89, 90. It goes over, you know, mm-hmm. over the sort of end of year period. And um, they they offered training to uh, a crew member from each each boat oh, okay. uh, at the BBC. So yep. um, the... Um, the woman who shot the footage uh, aboard of them. Maiden, yeah, yep. was the cook, um, and she um, she was one of the few people who, who took up the offer of training four days at the BBC to learn how to use a video camera and how to mm. you know, how to frame shots and so on. Yeah, um, they had two cameras on board. I mean, and, and thinking back to 1989, 90, yeah, there would have been great wadding bricks mm. of things mm-hmm. that needed batteries changing. Or, or at least, you know, needed to be drawing on the juice all the time. They yep. would have needed tapes changing quite regularly. Uh, they would have been... 90 minutes, 90, well, yeah, 90 minutes. Well, you possibly set them at, yeah, you know, double uh, you know, oh, half yeah. speed or yeah. full speed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how often, but... And you wouldn't necessarily have them running continuously, but you'd have no. them going for a while. But, yes, you definitely need to be on, on top of it. It's not a GoPro. It's mm-hmm. not recording to an SD card or no. to, to a or hard drive or whatever. Going live to Facebook. No. So um, see, I threw that in there. Yeah, well done, well done. Uh, <laughs> I am the future, and uh, the f- the footage is is in some instances quite rough and raw. Yeah, but it gives you a very strong sense of being there. The the film came about because uh, Tracy Edwards was mm-hmm. giving a talk at a at a girls' school about this adventure about four four years ago, and. Uh, there was a guy called Alex Holmes, who's the who's the director of this film. Yep. was at, was present for this talk because his daughter was was at the school, and he came up to her afterwards and said, "Please tell me nobody's made a film of this." And she said, "No, nobody, nobody has." And he started he started talking about uh, who he would cast in it and so oh, on. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? And uh, and she, <laughs> I, I interviewed her, and she said, and she looked at him with this sort of disappointed. You know, expression on her face, and he was like, well, "What's wrong?" And she, she said, "Well, I thought you might want, want might want to make it as a documentary, given we've got all this footage." And he went, "There's footage." <laughs> <laughs> and so he was he was delighted to discover this, and uh, he he um he then basically you know he, he put all that together and, and interviewed them all, and away it goes, and we've got a cracking cracking yarn. Um, Alex Holmes made a documentary about um, about your favourite bike rider, Who's Eddie that? Merckx. No, Lance Armstrong. Ah, yes. He made uh, "Stop at Nothing," the Lance Armstrong story. Okay, uh, back in two thousand and fourteen. That so. that um, we 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 spoke about the. Uh, we were just when you're talking about footage, you remind me. We mm. spoke about the uh, documentary "Deep Water," mm. which was about a first solo race around the world and Donald Crowhurst who mm. faked his his journey yeah, yeah, and then yeah. and then disappeared. But there's some marvelous sixteen mil footage taken from a, a fixed camera aboard yeah. aboard a mast. And you get sixteen mil. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that that's even more mind blowing yeah, because yeah, yeah. the the challenges of you know filming that and mm-hmm. changing reels but, and so but, on. But but yeah but but 
like uh, I, 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 the French shotsman's name escapes me, but he's one of the most compelling characters in the yeah. documentary. You see him climbing up to the to the like climbing up the mast, and the, like, it, it's yeah. swaying. And this you're looking. So, this is solo. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's and he's fixing the camera yeah. to it. Then you see him climbing back down and going about his business, doing stuff. It's just, it's a great, it's a great documentary. But yeah, I met a solo yachts woman once when I was a young boy working in the book department at David Jones. Kay Cotty. Right. She brought out her autobiography or biographies about eighty six. Yeah, I yeah. think when she when she did that. It's it's the kind of thing that that really compels people and, 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 and engages the imagination. Tor Heyerdahl's uh, Ra expedition, there's been a few documentaries on that as well and it's just the idea of it's you and a few millimetres of plywood <laughs> against the ocean I, and the whales, I the sharks and the ice. nothing worse. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not a very good... Yachtsman? Uh, swimmer. Okay. So the oh, idea, well, then... The idea of being, you know out there mm. although i suppose it almost doesn't matter because i mean really if you go overboard it doesn't <laughs> how, how far do you think you're gonna yeah, swim exactly. <laughs> i suppose that's that's the one saving i'm a grace. really good swimmer oh what like three thousand k's <laughs> good that good or or <laughs> the hilarious thing about tracy edwards right yeah. uh, uh, he's just such a fantastic character mm. but she told me that she she gets seasick yeah. Right. Oh, so, Nelson got seasick. Yes. Well, that's what she said. She yeah. says, I'm oh, in good she? company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but she, she reckons that after about two days at sea, she's yeah. okay. Most people are who, right. who get seasick. But yeah. those first two days, she's yeah. head in the bucket. You know? mm, mm. <sighs> the channel, like, like it, it, it caused a lot of embarrassment and shame when, when great warrior like sea lords, like Admiral Horatio Nelson, in the channel are spewing up over the side. And they're, yeah. these guys in charge of the navy. Yeah. Mm, okay. All right. Mm, that's good. <laughs> we'll invade in just a minute. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, that's yep. Maiden. Maiden. Seek it out. Seek it out. If you like this episode of The Clappers, why don't you tell your friends? What do you think about that, Carl? Should people tell their friends? Great idea. And you can, of course, like us. You can go to our Facebook page. You can like what we do and you can see interesting little tidbits about various things that we think are relevant to the podcast. You can always listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. They're all still up. Did you know that? Yes. They're all still up. Some yes. things are only up for a little while. Our, our stuff is all still up. There's an archive. An, an archive. archive of us. <laughs> is that a good thing? I, I think know. it is. Yeah. I think it is. All right. Carl, I've just read the latest quarterly essay yep. by Annabelle Crabb. Yes. I wish I could remember what it was called, but it's about men. It's about men. It's following on from her book, The Wife Drought. It's about, in particular, uh, Australian men. And I'm going to say a certain class of Australian men. Go on. Uh, the corporate upper echelon Australian man. And uh, his, as a father and as a husband, his lack of, uh, shall we say, engagement with housework and child raising. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I, I think I have to leave because I'm starting to feel slightly implicated. I don't think you are. I just heard you out there on the phone to somebody. Yeah. Sounding very much like the kind of man Annabelle Crabb wants to see more of in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Rearranging your work because of some domestical responsibilities. Yes, that's okay, that's very good, man. That's very good. I, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that mm. under mm. slightly false pretenses. Okay, my wife is away at the moment, so yeah. more of it falls on me. And so, but but okay. It, all right. Uh, she starts off looking at the political sphere, yep. looking at 
uh, there's one, and this happens towards the end of the essay, there's one, I think, Western Australian Labor MP who decided he had no kids when he got in and he decided after the third one was on the way that he just could no longer bear the travel and the yeah. workload and he he, was, he stepped down he stepped down for family reasons and and as we know that's a euphemism that is such a euphemism that is a euphemism generally yeah. he yeah. actually really did step down for yeah. family reasons and the biggest surprise to him was that he's being stopped in the street all the time by other men congratulating him right uh, I, I've got I just made a couple of notes on some statistical uh, Carl thinks I'm very bad at statistics and he's right but if I copy them from somebody else I can oh no no these are from these are from uh, Annabelle. Anna, Annabelle Crabb's quarterly essay you cribbed from Crabb and she starts off talking about Jacinda Ardern, mm-hmm. who is the only uh, first PM to give birth in office, and which is kind of amazing, but maybe kind of not, because I, I reckon you could count on one hand the amount of female prime ministers that you could bring to mind yep. in the history of the world. I mean, I can count on. I can think of four right now off the top of my head. Five. No, I got there five. Many got five who yeah. uh, enter office at that age. At that age. That's the That's, thing. Yeah. yeah, but for most of us, a prime minister means a man with a stay-at-home wife and fully grown kids who don't need anything other than to appear in photos. Uh, In 1991, 4% of dads were stay-at-home dads. And guess how much it is now? In 2019. So it was 4%. 4% in 1991. uh, What's that, 28 years ago? Mm -hmm. Well, of course the world has changed quite Mm -hmm. a lot, so Mm -hmm. it must be higher. Mm -hmm. Um, Five? Yep. Really? Spot on. Whoa, yep, 5%. Yeah. Uh, the Australian Institute of Family Studies have a, did a great graph which showed families with kids under 12. Uh, so can I just say, yeah, as a sure, statistician, yeah, yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. Uh, the, uh, the um, uh, percentage of stay-at-home dads has mm-hmm. increased by 25%. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? 25%. It really sounds good, doesn't it? Plus, population has increased since 1991. But for for men who work 40 to 45 hours a week, uh, nothing changes for them in terms of their housework or their contribution, whereas women, uh, it doubles and it stays that way even after they've returned to full-time work. So there's uh, an issue in Australian society, because she's just looking at Australia, but she brings in some excellent examples from other parts of the world where they've tried different systems. In uh, Scandinavia, I think it's Denmark, they have a use it or lose it system where men are entitled to have a big slab, but it, they've got to take it. A parental leave. It can't be spread out. But So there's, there's, there's a very generous amount of parental leave for women, but men can have some too, but they can't. But they've actually got to take it. And the take-up is much higher over there than it is here. Our take-up is very low. And it's to do with, obviously, status and also the fear that you're going to lose your, your step on the rung by taking time off to, to, to be a parent and yep. to look after the kids. Uh, like I say, it... it I have no problem. I think it's a great it's a great essay, and it it brings up a couple of interesting uh, s- solutions, perhaps that are happening right now in Australia. Uh, one in particular at Medibank, uh, the company Medibank, of course. They is it 2018 on International Women's Day. Medibank announced a system where they would abandon the distinction between the primary and secondary carer. 
Now that's can I just yes, jump in do. here? Yeah, yeah. That's really that's really interesting and really mm-hmm. really useful because uh, in my workplace, um, I had access to six weeks of parental leave. I had when, two um, when my and this is going back now. My youngest child is fourteen. Okay? Yeah, so quite that's a while back now. Back, yeah. um, and I'm not sure where it stands now. I think it might mm-hmm. be slightly better than that. I think. But I could take one week uh, at the birth. Yes. Uh, and then the other five weeks I could only access if I could prove that I was the primary caregiver. Ah. Uh, the primary caregiver. A lot of places are and, like this. And it was kind of like, well, why should I have to be the primary caregiver mm-hmm. in order to be home and helping out? Exactly. Um, particularly in the case of a second child. where And, and who know, is the primary caregiver? Yeah, that's right. Well, and, I, anyway, well they, so they, was, they say the birth, obviously, at a lot, in, in I think with, with, our, with the system of uh, leave paid by the government. It's uh, it's a it goes to the mother, yeah. Uh, and so the Medibank system of saying no more primary secondary caregiver. Yeah. That was in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, 18 weeks is offered to either parent any time in the first two years of the child's life. And say both parents work there, they can both take the leave at the same time. That's so fantastic. you and your wife work for Medibank, you can both take 18 weeks off at the same time. And the system's completely flexible. It's called family flex. Yeah. So you can juggle your leave around in any kind of system that works with you. You might have an existing child. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen with families. Now, the take-up has gone from 2.5% eligible men taking parental leave to 28% yeah, right. of their male workforce taking it. And uh, Telstra in 2009 followed Medibank's leave about 2009 19, sorry, in 19 yeah. in abandoning the primary se- It's a very important distinction. It certainly uh, is. Because you could um, – it, it – it, it, it's something that immediately places a, a, a small amount of stigma on the person, or the man wanting or trying to take leave, and uh, labels are really important. Well, I, I, personally, I think that what it does is it militates against helping out. Yeah, it's like mm. it's all or nothing, mm. and it's like, well, you know, it's chaotic the yeah. first six to twelve. Well, certainly the first six months of of um, parenting. Um, I'm gonna say the first eight years, is, uh, <laughs> and I'm told that the next eight years yeah. are pretty. <laughs> yeah, I reckon by the age of thirty, they're probably yes. out of it, uh, out of home. Yeah, maybe. one would hope so. One would hope so. Yeah. One would hope so. Um, yeah. It's it's something that I find interesting because the the type of man that's being described, that the man who 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 works and maybe does an extra fifteen minutes housework, uh, maybe you know, and is so bad at it that it's almost engineered that this man, this father or uh, father slash and and or husband is unable to really um, make a a decent contribution because he's crap at it. And so I'll just give it here. I'll do it. If that kind of attitude, whether it's the ironing, the washing or, or whatever, you know, um, it, that's not the kind of world that I inhabit. And if, if, you go to the school uh, where I take my child most mornings. I'm not the only guy doing this. There's lots of men who have rearranged their lives so that they're part of their children's life in terms of picking them up, taking them there. I haven't delved in <laughs> how they how the, how their system, but in terms of the corporate world, in terms of men earning 150, 250k a year, that's a dip, that's that's these are the people that Annabelle Crabb is talking about. These are the families that they're talking about. These high flying people who are on planes all the time and don't get the 
that talk about, she's talking about male politicians and asking them, you know, the question that male politicians are never asked about, how do you balance your family? And at first they don't really understand the, the question. And they say, oh, well, I, I faced, we, we, shoulders? we FaceTime, we FaceTime. So that's their idea of contributing and balancing uh, work and family is by being at an airport or in an office yeah. and doing FaceTime with their children. Um, the, just a, a couple of quick things that I've 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 noted is that a, a good a, a pricey or a good a good way to approach reading this essay if if you choose to is that the question around men participating more in family life, bringing up their kids and doing housework and so on, is associated with loss. Is what they're going to lose from it. They're going to lose uh, how much money, how much seniority, how much status, how much identity will I lose by becoming a, a, a greater participant in the whole the whole situation at home. And the better question is what is to be gained, which is, it, as Medibank has found, better retention of staff because people were just leaving, better workplace engagement, which is apparently a really trendy buzzword around um, workplaces at the moment, engagement, productivity, balance, parent-child relationships, and happiness, which is something that we ought to talk about from time to time when it comes to families and comes to work because they can be places where you can be happy rather than stressed and run off your feet and, you know. Look, I think it's all well and good to say those things, uh, you know, should be taken into account and they should indeed Mm. be taken Mm. into account but I also think it's a little naive to imagine that there is no loss involved or at least has not been uh, Mm -hmm. loss involved. I mean, up to this point, as workplaces evolve and become more open-minded and more progressive in how they deal with this kind of stuff uh, and and the whole work-life balance thing, then then sure, it Mm. may well be that you can look at it from the equation, from the side of the equation that is what's to be gained. Yeah. Uh, But I I would say that it's been – by and large, until pretty recently, mm. it has been a loss. Yeah, oh, oh, it has. And, and th- but the it's idea also, now it's that. Like within the domestic sphere. Yeah. It, there's, you know, it's like, well, the loss of a significant chunk of income. Mm. I mean, there is a trade off that Oh, that's, that's, definitely, of, that's uh, definitely true. You know, there is a loss of income. Domestic econo- uh, yeah. economies that operate within these kind of things. And, and I'm not saying this to be defensive about, you know, my relative lack of contribution. I'm, I'm uh, not I, even I, thinking about you. No, 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 no but I'm, I'm uh, addressing, but I'm, please, I'm, please, I'm addressing please do. the putative yeah. listener here yeah, yeah. who will be going, oh, you're just saying that because. And it's ah, like, yeah. yeah, true, but, mm. but also not true. It's mm. like, I do think that it is a really. It has been the case that that uh, workplaces have not been very willing to. No, they haven't. Spend. Oh, and, men have been have a lot of trouble. Been, loss has been a real yeah. factor for people who opt out of you know yeah. prioritizing work over other things. I know that I've I've spent most of my working life doing well in excess of the the notional thirty eight hours or whatever it is I'm I'm meant to work. Mm. I know that my work life bleeds into my home life all the time in all kinds of ways, uh, but. You know, you, you negotiate these things, mm. and there is there is up and downside in in the resulting um, balance that you that you reach. Well, for, the, the, for I think that the upside. And I'm all for talking about the downside. Don't worry, mm. I'm all for that. But I think it's nice to recognise the upside in that there are two massive corporations that have said we are now willing Absolutely. to look at. Yeah. Um, primary and secondary, no such thing. You're both parents and you're both equal in our eyes in terms of uh, your your contribution to our workplace. We don't want to, basically, we don't want to lose you. We don't need you to have a baby and then leave because we've made it so difficult for you, you know, and I think that's 
that's that's a that's a good thing. It's a bad thing that every other corporation is. It's almost impossible for a man to have any kind of flexibility or get any kind of parental or family leave, and it's often refused. There was uh, a, a very upsetting anecdote about these uh, two brothers who are painters at Liverpool Hospital and they would work from 7am to 2.30 in the afternoon and so they could both pick up their kids because both of their wives worked full time and there was a, a, a new kind of system put in place for streamlining and, and, and making everybody's hours fit in and, and cut, cut, cut red tape or costs or who knows what kind of bureaucratic uh, excuses were made but they were then told no you can't start at 7.30 and finish at 7 and finish you have to finish at 3 now and they they said, well, we can't. And uh, well, we, you know, this will add huge amounts of costs. And they took them to court, and they lost. The brothers lost. The brothers lost. Really? Yes, they lost. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They it's weren't being. Crap, they it? found that they weren't being discriminated against, even though it would see because in the legislation there are there are sex based definitions yeah. on roles within the within the legislation about fairness and, and and parental leave and things like that. And they weren't asking for leave. They were just. Yeah. And frankly, it does seem a, a a little not just inflexible, but a little bit mean to say to people you have to. To make this massive rearrangement of your lives and your whole family's work and your children's school and everything because we want you at work half an hour later, you know. So, I mean, I've been lucky enough to mostly work in places that allowed flexibility in a mostly informal way. As of I, and yeah, it's a very informal system. I mean, I worked worked in the Queensland Public Service when I I first left high school back in 1872, I think it was. It shows too. Thank you. It shows. And uh, we had flexi time. Yeah. and that was yeah. uh, that was very. I worked with a guy who, yeah. who used to, uh, according to the books, yes. which you had to write your time of arrival and time of departure and all that kind of stuff. So uh, this guy used to, uh, according to the paperwork, arrive yes. at eight a.m. Yes, work through till one, and then uh, go for lunch for an hour, and mm-hmm. then work through when he got back from two till six. Right. Mm-hmm. In reality, mm-hmm. he basically went straight from home to the pub. Mm-hmm. Um, he in the morning. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Drank himself into a stupor. <laughs> came into the office sometime around about midday and signed the book as having at arrived at eight, eight o'clock, going yeah. out at one. And then he went back to the pub. Mm-hmm. And uh, occasionally he'd come back into the office. He'd crawl into the compactus and uh, and have it wound up so that he could have, have a nap. Sleep. Ah, oh, yeah. that sounds like a dream job. That doesn't was it? time. Yeah. <laughs> I I won't, but could share all kinds of similar stories about workplaces that seem seem along. If he's still alive, I'll be very very surprised. (laughs) So. Listeners, grab yourself a copy of the latest quarterly essay by Annabelle Crabb and see what you think about the roles of men as fathers and parents in Australian society. Thanks for listening to The Clappers. Of course, you can tell your friends. Um, If you do like us and uh, you want to share the love with your friends, why not send them a link? 